Washington think tanks, associations, and experts all have weighed in with their solutions for the nation's transportation funding crisis, proposing financing mechanisms, policy solutions, and legislative language. A few have paid for advertising campaigns and public opinion polls to create buzz and prove their points. There's more talk than ever on this topic. A leading voice among those with a view joins us in the studio today. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. It's no surprise that opinions on the funding question are a dime a dozen. But it's also true some viewpoints mean more than others. For decades, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has led the way with ideas and commentary offered on behalf of three million member businesses nationwide. Making the case for the Chamber is Ed Mortimer, its Vice President of Transportation and Infrastructure. He visited the studio this week to share his organization's four-point plan to address America's crisis. Our four-point plan is a roadmap to modernize America's infrastructure, and you get the whole plan at letsrebuildamerica.com. First is you need to, we believe that there needs to be an adjustment in the federal fuel tax, which helps invest in our highways, our bridges, and our public transit. Um, we haven't adjusted that in 26 years. We're never going to modernize our infrastructure uh, on a 1993 uh, funding mechanism. And so the Chamber believes that we need to increase the federal fuel tax five cents a year over a five-year period. Um, that would generate about $400 billion in a 10-year budget period, which is, we believe, how long this bill needs to be to provide long-term certainty and predictability of federal funding. Um, we take that cost very seriously to the American taxpayer. Our research shows that the Chamber's five cents a year over five-year proposal would cost the average American $9 a month or about $110 a year. We contrast that with if we do nothing on this issue. Right now, the average American loses $600 a year due to either a blown tire or busted axle on inadequate road conditions. We're also losing up to $1,000 a year in wasted fuel costs sitting in congestion. So the cost of doing nothing is costing us $1,600. The cost to modernize our infrastructure could cost you know, $110. I'm not a math major, but that's pretty good return on investment. And so that's something we believe we need to get done this year. Our second part of our plan is we're not going to meet all the infrastructure needs and all asset classes just through the fuel tax. So we need to find ways to encourage more private investment. Um, there's been some successes on private investment around the country. We need to continue that growth. And where we are able to do private investment, that could free up limited federal dollars for projects that a public-private partnership doesn't make sense. Number three is we need to expedite project delivery. We have to utilize limited dollars more effectively and make sure that we stop wasting money in the permitting process and start investing in construction. Uh, we believe that we support the administration put out a uh, one federal decision executive order that said there was a two-year time limit for major federal projects. The Chamber's plan supports that and wants to codify that into law, as well as saying if a state also wants to tap in these federal dollars, they should meet the two-year requirement. And then finally, is if we're able to pass a trillion or a trillion and a half, two trillion dollar infrastructure bill that's being talked about right now, we don't have the workforce to do it. And so that gets us into a few areas on the domestic front, looking at apprenticeship programs, job retraining. But again, the reality is we have 3.7% unemployment. And so we need to have a serious discussion about immigration policy that 
protects our borders, but allows us to bring in men and women to do these 21st century jobs. So that's our four-point plan. We laid it out because a lot of members of Congress said the chamber has always been supportive of infrastructure, but you've never been specific. So we laid out a very specific plan. We are going to stand behind men and women who are willing to deal with these issues. Um, It's going to be a process. So the plan is a starting point. Um, but we've gotten a lot of good receptivity to the plan. We think there's bipartisan support to, to look at the plan and to move on something. And uh, we're very optimistic that we have a window of opportunity this year to get something done. The gas tax is first on your list, mm-hmm. raising that, political football. Mm-hmm. You talk about wanting to get that done this year. Mm-hmm. How realistic do you think that is, given what we're hearing mm-hmm. from all sides? Well, we think it's very realistic. Um you know, it's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. If you look at raising the gas tax, uh, you know, Alabama just raised their gas tax. Tennessee, South Carolina, these are very conservative states. Um, California, who's a very liberal state. So it doesn't really matter what your political persuasion is. Um, both Republicans and Democrats have been willing to do this at the state level. We just need to give our federal officials the courage that they have at the local level to do the right thing. And we at the chamber have basically said we're going to stand behind any member of Congress who's willing to do the right thing and make this vote. Um, doesn't matter what your party is. We're going to stand behind that person. Uh, we're joined in this effort with organized labor um, to say we're going to support those members of Congress who are willing to address this issue. Again, the cost of inaction is actually going to cost all of us as Americans more money because eventually this infrastructure is going to get rebuilt. It's a question of when are we going to get started and then how much is it going to cost? The longer we delay, the more costs the American taxpayer. Politically, it's probably easier for a Democrat to support this than a Republican. So does that mean the onus is on the White House to step out and say, I'm good with this? Well, it's going to take all three branches coming together. Uh, I think if you look at the history of the federal gas tax, um, Ronald Reagan is the one who supported this. Um, In the first place, Eisenhower started it. Um, You know, President Herbert Walker Bush adjusted it. Bill Clinton did it in 93. Um, So presidential leadership has to be part of the mix. It's going to be something where Republicans and Democrats are saying, we can put the partisanship aside. This is something we can all agree on. It's a budget neutral way to have the users of the system pay to improve the system. So we think there is that opportunity here with divided government. Um, If you look at all the issues that they're looking at grappling with today, there is no other issue that can bring Republicans and Democrats together, such as infrastructure. There was some hope that this might be happening with this two-part White House Congressional Democrats soiree that occurred recently, Uh, but it it didn't end up going anywhere because of other issues that got mixed in with this conversation. What are the prospects as you see them for getting that kind of a conversation back on track? Well, we see the outlook for that to be very positive in the sense that, you know, as you mentioned, the meeting actually that was supposed to happen, they agreed on a $2 trillion infrastructure bill. They were supposed to meet to talk about how to pay for it. Um, The meeting never got to the substance of the issue. It got to do with investigations and a lot of extraneous matters that had nothing to do with infrastructure. So we are confident that we are going to get the president and Congress back in a room and convince them they need to negotiate this. You know, we elect men and women to all of these offices to serve the American people. And this issue is not going away. Um, I believe in 2020, candidates are going to be held accountable for what they've done or not done on the infrastructure issue. Um, we made it a part of the 20 
2016 campaign. Both presidential candidates talked about it. Donald Trump talked about an election night. He's talked about it for the two and a half years he's been president. Um, now it's time for the delivery phase. And so we got to put some of the bickering and the partisanship aside and get the men and women back in the room figuring out how do we solve problems for the American people. I think everyone listening would say that's a good plan. They also have watched this for a long time, too, and they know that it is easier said than done. Turning to the next point in the Chamber's four-point plan, the idea of private investment, the President has talked about that a lot, too, but not so much lately. Where does that conversation stand? So I, I think you're right that there's been an evolution in the administration's position on public-private partnerships. Um, I think uh, originally in the, in the first draft of a proposal the administration put out, um, it was very slanted toward in, encouraging states to raise most of the revenue and specifically was highlighting the public-private partnership as a way to do it. Um, the president, um, when they agreed on the $2 trillion infrastructure bill, I think the president came out and said that that was a silly idea and we don't need public-private partnerships. We need real dollars here. Um, like a lot of things in politics, the truth somewhere in the middle. Um, Public-private partnerships have to be a tool in the toolkit of options that communities look at when they're looking to fund and finance their projects. It is not a replacement for core increased federal investment, but it's a tool in the toolkit. Um, we believe it is going to continue to be an important part of any solution. Um, but I think we've certainly seen the administration kind of back away from really imposing or forcing states to utilize it as a tool. Um, but again, we think that it needs to be an option that communities that it makes sense to have, they utilize it. Um, you know, I, I live here in Northern Virginia area. We have a project that uh, Virginia DOT and Transurban came together on, um, and it's really been a benefit to the community where commuters have a choice. They can either ride a general purpose lane, or if they're willing to pay an additional toll through an easy pass, they can guarantee that they're going to get to where they need to go in a timely manner. Um, I think that's consumer choice. That's a good option in a highly congested area. Um, that may not work in every community in this country, but we need to grow the options, not limit them. Just like some Republicans may need cover to support a gas tax, states need cover oftentimes before they'll consider a P3. So we're not talking about necessarily needing a mandate. We just need something for reluctant states to point to as an opportunity that they're going to pursue, but hey, it wasn't our idea. You know, we're, we're being allowed to do this by the feds. Maybe we're being forced to do it, but at the very least, we're being allowed. Absolutely. It's got to be an option on the table. Um, but, you know, we got a challenge. There's still 20 states in this country that don't even allow a public-private partnership. So we need to educate the states as looking at it as an option. Um, a lot of people say it's only an urban uh, method. You can't use it in a rural area, but if you go to Pennsylvania... They pulled together rural bridges, 300 rural bridges, and they put it out to a public-private partnership. So that was just solving a problem that they had been dealing with for many years. So you can do this in both an urban and a rural area, but again, it's not for everyone. So we have to educate everyone on the option. It's a tool in the toolkit, and like I said earlier, it frees up limited federal dollars. Whatever we can fund through a public-private partnership, it frees up limited federal dollars on projects that that option would not make sense. Projects end up costing a lot more when they're delayed, and the permitting process is usually the culprit. Sometimes it has to do with deciding where or scope, those sorts of things. But 
most of the time it's getting hung up in the environmental process. People who've learned how to play that game can kill a project, essentially, drag it out over 20 or 30 years, and it's no longer needed. Something else is needed, and we're back to the drawing board. You've focused on that issue as well. Give us a little bit more detail as to how you think you're going to be able to move the ball from where Congress is now on that issue to where you'd like it to be with some more specifics, broader scope, that sort of thing. Well, I think at the federal level, we've actually made a lot of good progress um, between the last two surface transportation bills, MAP 21 and the FAST Act, um, to expedite some of the permitting processes in surface transportation. We also created in, in the FAST Act a, a dashboard that's called FAST 41, which allows projects to enter into an, an arena where they're publicly listed on a website. There's an accountability, and if there's conflicts between federal agencies, there's an, a permitting council that's supposed to referee those. Our view is that two years, is you can do that timeline. It's a reasonable timeline. And from our perspective, we'd rather the answer be no and put limited dollars into projects that can get through yes um, than, as you mentioned, waiting 20 years for a project. And then you lose faith with the taxpayer. There's no way you're going to bring private investment in it. They're not going to wait 20 years. Um, we have seen successes where we've had natural disasters when the I-285 bridge got burnt down. We were able to build that back in 120 days. And the environment was protected. At the same time, the project was delivered to the taxpayers in a reasonable timeline. So, again, we're not talking about changing environmental law. We're not talking about changing the public input process in the, in the permitting process. Those are both important aspects that must be maintained. What we're saying is let's create an environment where there's a reasonable timeline where it's a yes or no. And again, yes or no, and if it's no, then we move on. Let's limited dollars have to go to projects that get to yes, because the American taxpayers are not going to want to pay more for projects that continue to linger. And we believe we have bipartisan support on that. Um, again, we've gotten good language in the last two surface bills. Um, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, it's everyone's benefit to have projects delivered in a timely manner. And we believe codifying the executive order which means we no longer have to, if there's a new administration, they, that, that executive order goes away. If we codify it into law, then we can have some long-term predictability in that permitting process. We also believe we can encourage more private investment. If they see the U.S. government's serious about delivering projects in a timely manner, that could really grow the investments we're able to make in modernizing our infrastructure. The chamber was on the Hill recently testifying on this topic, asking for or suggesting some specifics to further refine the process that has been moving through the FAST 41 process. Uh, removing the sunset provision was one of those. Are we about halfway through the seven years right now, or where we are we? We are. It expires, I believe, in 2020, so we're beyond oh, half. it's next year. Right, <laughs> yeah. and so we're actually supporting to have that expanded in this infrastructure bill now. Um, we would just as soon get rid of any sunset provision and let's keep this going for the long term. We think it'll be a more effective program if we don't have a end date on it. Um, That being said, we'd obviously like to have as long as possible because projects need to know that predictability of that this program is going to be around for a while. That will, we believe, encourage more types of asset classes. Right now, we've we've seen a lot of hydro, a lot of energy projects. We really want to get more transportation programs in there. 
But we're not going to see that until there's some long-term certainty that this program is, is going to be around for a while. I was going to ask you if there were any success stories, given that we're nearly through the seven years. You say most of them are not in roads and bridges. Correct. Most of them are not. Most of them are hydro projects. We had a hydro project in Ohio. Um, but I will say, I mean, if you look at the construction of the Tappan Zee Bridge, that was a public-private partnership that was expedited through some permitting processes. Um, and that worked really well in New York. Um, some of the uh, permitting in LaGuardia with the public-private partnership to expand some of the terminals there. Um, we've seen that go through the program. So um, it's just something we're still educating folks on the opportunities the program may offer. Um, Senator Portman is going to draft a new bill and drop it pretty soon um, to talk about getting rid of that sunset provision, and we're very supportive of doing that. You also want to expand the kinds of projects that could be included or considered for yes, this process. Absolutely. We think all asset classes of infrastructure should have the opportunity, if they choose to get into this program, should have that opportunity to do so. Again, this is another tool in the toolkit where if projects can enter into the dashboard, we believe private sector investment will grow. Um, right now, we hear from a lot of private investors, we just don't have the pipeline of projects because they're not going to put money out there for five or six years. They have about a one to two year window of opportunity. And so they want to invest in projects that are going to either get into construction or not in a, in a, in a timely manner. And expanding the eligibility of Fast 41 projects, we think, would be a big step in the right direction. When you're talking about money, the overall investment in the program, keeping projects moving, getting them from the planning to the construction to the delivery phase sooner stretches your dollars, right? Because if you drag out a project for 10 years before you start work on it, it's going to be 10 years more expensive. Have you done calculations at all on that when you are out messaging this? What, what, what's the number? So the number we found is um, it's about 20% of the cost of a federal transportation project goes into the planning approval process. Um, that's actually down from about 25% 10 years ago. So again, we've been making moves in the right direction. But if we can get that number down to 15 or 10%, um, that could make a real difference. And again, it's not just the savings, but it's also the encouragement of other revenue sources to come into this debate if they know these projects are going to move through the pipeline in a more timely manner. Of course, workers benefit too. When projects are moving, there are jobs. There are more jobs longer. Uh, companies are comfortable hiring. Just everybody wins, right? It's a win-win. I mean, like you said, there's, more, there's a bigger pipeline of projects. These projects take more time. So these workers are going to have secure jobs, um, and they don't have to sit around waiting for when the permit's going to come. Um, we want to put men and women to work. We want to modernize the system sooner rather than later. Um, we're already at a point in where the World Bank ranks our infrastructure ninth, even though we have the largest economy in the world. We're continuing to drop. So the longer we delay dealing with this issue, the longer we're going to continue to see the slide. And so we really view the permit streamlining as a good faith effort to provide the American people projects in a more timely manner, provide some predictability for when these projects can be delivered. And again, with that predictability, we believe we're going to have um, support from the American people saying we see government actually working. We're delivering. These projects are going to happen on time. And we can actually get more projects through the pipeline. Give us a little more on this fourth piece of the plan, the workforce piece. You mentioned wanting to uh, encourage some discussion about 
training and other other programs to get workers ready to take these jobs. Does that mean we're asking the federal government to expand existing programs? Are we creating new programs? Are we doing both? We're doing both. So we need to have an all-hands approach. Um, you know, the Perkins Act is something that um, we worked very hard at the chamber in getting that reauthorized. That includes some apprenticeship programs. The reality is that, um, you know, not every American needs to have a four-year liberal arts degree. So how do we provide the skill set and the options for younger people to perhaps get into industry that with innovation and technology that's there right now, these are actually fascinating. These are well-paying jobs that really can use a new skill set. And how do we get people attracted to this industry? So we are doing a lot of outreach in elementary schools, middle schools, um, but just that alone isn't going to solve the problem. And that's where I get into the second part where we have to come up with a comprehensive immigration package. Um, every, not just in, in construction, but every business in America is suffering through workforce development issues that we just don't have available high-skilled workers. And what we're finding around the country is that communities that uh, are modernizing their infrastructure and that are providing mobility options for high-skilled millennial workers, they're attracting them. I'll give you an example. Columbus, Ohio was an old freight town. Um, they've reinvented themselves now as a smart city. So you go there, there's biotech companies, there are a variety of mobility options for the citizens there, and they are attracting these 25 to 35-year-old recently college graduates that every community in America is craving to get. They did it. Uh, you know, you look at Charlotte, North Carolina. There are communities around the country that if they provide those options, that's how you attract those folks. But just sticking with the infrastructure that we built in the 50s, that's not attracting high-skilled uh, millennial workers to those communities. And so that's why we need to have the federal vision, because we won't have a federal vision. We won't have, we can, we're in a global a marketplace, right? We compete with not just our states, but we compete with everybody in the world. And that's where that federal vision comes in. We have to have a system that allows us to have a system that can allow us to compete with everyone around the world. And we know we're now in an e-commerce environment. So you know, it's a very different environment than back in the 50s and 60s. How much in your messaging have you linked the transportation infrastructure discussion to the immigration discussion? And secondly, does that help or hurt in terms of trying to get action sooner? Well, we have linked it as part of our plan. And I will say the administration has also made it a part of their plan. Um, and so I think there's a recognition on a bipartisan basis that we need to have a workforce component to any infrastructure bill. Um, organized labor wants to be a big supporter. You know, they have apprenticeship programs and how can we help them grow them? So, you know, Ivanka Trump is leading a task force on uh, workforce development. Our, C our CEO, Tom Donahue, is on that. Um, and so we really believe that um, any infrastructure bill that you see move through the pipeline is going to have a component. Now, it's not all money. Um, it's really encouraging some business leaders to step up. It's encouraging our universities and think tanks to step up. It's a shared responsibility. Um, but I think at the end of the day, there is some federal leadership and federal dollars that will be part of any infrastructure bill to address that issue. How often does the chamber hear from its members around the country on this issue? It is probably the number one or number two issue that we hear, and I know that because usually when a Chamber of Commerce comes to Washington, they stop by our building, and I am the one that they ask to hear about that issue more than any other issue. Um, I also have the pleasure of traveling around the country, 
Um, I, from California, I've been to Missouri, all over the place, and it's always a top issue. When you look at what are attracting businesses to a community, there's three things. First is that it's a tax environment. Number two is a regulatory policy. And then number three is the infrastructure. You know, look at the example of Amazon. When they decided to locate two places, they picked uh, Crystal City, Virginia, and they also picked Long Island Sound in New York City, which they have recently pulled away from, but they may end up back there. But why do they pick those communities? They pick those communities for those three issues, right? They all have good policy in those three areas. So as our members and our chambers are looking to attract businesses, those are the areas they're looking for. And so that's always a top issue. And that's why the chamber has kind of taken a leadership role in this area. Um, It's really critical to our future economic success. We viewed the tax reform bill as a good start to put money in businesses' pockets. But if we don't follow that up with a sustained long-term infrastructure program, we're not going to have sustained long-term economic growth that we think every American deserves. Because very few businesses today, regardless of where they are, do business only where they are. They need to be able to move things out, whether it's through the post office or their own fleet of trucks, planes, boats, whatever. It's important to everyone now, more so than ever, right? Absolutely. And, and you mentioned all those different modes. They all have to be connected. Um, you know, and, and what's interesting is you go to Asia, you go to Europe, they have high-speed trains that go 350 miles an hour. They have airports that are better than any airport we have in this country. Um, other countries are making these investments, and we continue to fall behind. And, you know, that's not what this country was built on. Um, We believe this is an opportunity to actually get this back on track and to provide a 21st century infrastructure. We know that autonomous vehicles coming. We know that drones are coming. But we don't have the infrastructure to handle those things. So we know folks in the engineering business, in the materials business, they have innovation and technology they want to bring to the forefront. But if we can't figure out a reasonable way to invest in it, a lot of those technologies are sitting on the sideline. They're not being used. Final comments about the next six months, next 12 months. What's the Chamber's outlook for these issues and where they are at that point? We have a campaign going on now right now, Infrastructure Now. We view the next six months as critical um, because if we do not address infrastructure, and I'll be very specific We would like to see a variety of modes addressed, but specifically the surface transportation programs, our highways, bridges, and transit, there's an authorization bill that actually expires next year. But to reauthorize that, just to maintain the current funding levels, we need to come up with about 80 to $90 billion just to maintain. And if there is no revenue adjustment for that program this year, um, we are probably not going to see one next year. And then we're going to go through extensions. And you might remember that Um, to get the FAST Act, which is the current surface transportation bill, we had about 32 extensions of the program. So the reason we need to do it now is because next year is a presidential election year where one-third of the Senate and every House member is up. Um, You're not going to have a serious discussion on revenue in that environment. Some would argue we're already in 2020 politics. I think the first debates are at the end of June. Um, But we see a window of opportunity And what we are looking for is to try and get action out of the committee level before the August recess. If you don't see a bill move through a House committee, either the Transportation Committee or on the Senate side, the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, it's really going to be tough sledding this year. And then if we don't get it done this year, we're looking at 21-22. And what does that mean? That means unpredictability. That means some big projects are going to get put on hold. 
And it really means is that the dollar figure to actually modernize the system is going to grow exponentially. I think it's safe to say everyone listening is with you on that, and they hope that you and others fighting for this are successful. Well, thank you. And I encourage all everyone listening that you can do something about this. You can talk to your elected officials. Um, we have a website. It's fasterbettersafer.org. We're our coalition website where it can put you in touch with your members of Congress. Tell them the time to act is now. And we encourage everyone in this limited opportunity where we do have divided government, but we do have a lot of partisan bickering. This is not a Democrat issue or a Republican issue. This is an American issue. And we need to hold our lawmakers accountable to do the right thing in this area. Ed Mortimer, thanks for stopping by and sharing the Chamber's vision on transportation. Thank you. Next week, we get the perspective of those who build the projects from Steve Sander, the Chief Executive Officer of the Associated General Contractors of America. That's Wednesday, June 26th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.